0: The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. Hi, I'm PJ with ZooFit and welcome to Zoo Notable where we read books that help change the world and share how we can use that wisdom to change our lives. And whether you're an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and the environment, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. Welcome back to Zoo Notable. Most of this month, we've celebrated World Oceans Month with some ocean-themed books, but June has another very important noteworthy celebration attached to it. It's Pride Month, honoring all of those who've worked tirelessly to help those in the LGBTQ plus community receive equal justice and opportunities. I have to admit, I have a long backstory to today's Zoo Notable. I was pretty reading a pretty scientific book called Evolution's Rainbow by Joan Roughgarden for this specific episode. About halfway through reading the book, though, I lost it. Yeah, it seemed to just vanish. I looked everywhere, but I couldn't find it. As the date for my scheduled episode approached, I began to panic. Now, by random circumstance, I watched a late-night talk show with whose guest was Elliot Schrieffer, promoting his book, Queer Ducks and Other Animals. Elliot was discussing some of the various ways the animal kingdom demonstrates queer and diverse sexuality. Alright, sold. Now, I don't often buy books without actually having read them before, or knowing the author, or at least having a friend or teacher highly recommend the book. This exception, though, was worth the quote-unquote risk. Queer Ducks is chock full of evidence that who you are, how you identify, and your sexual preference is 100% natural. That's right. Transgender animals? Oh yeah. And not just fish. Mammals display trans identities, too. Ellen Schrefer also researched a fantastic book that is perfect for young people, or for people who are just interested in animal science, to be honest. As per usual, I look for the life lessons and honestly I thought the lessons would all be about acceptance and knowing who you are and that being gay or trans or asexual or bisexual was natural. And of course, that is precisely what this book is about. But I found some fascinating stories from the animal kingdom that show just how wise and wonderful nature really is. So let's dive into queer ducks and and other animals to celebrate Pride Month. And we'll kick things off with a quote. Many of us were brought up with the Noah's Ark version of life, which tells us that the proper order of things is a bonded male-female pair from every species on Earth. Darwin's theory of natural selection only seems to confirm it. By his logic, only heterosexual pairings allow for the successful propagation of genes making them the primary driver of evolution. If natural selection is working properly, the argument goes, homosexual desire shouldn't happen. Any sexual act that doesn't uh, produce offspring doesn't help an animal get more of its genes into the next generation, and so is some kind of error. These assumptions about the normalcy and biological fitness of only male-female pairings are perfectly reasonable. But what if they're also wrong. All right, so folks, we're going to rock the boat today with some very interesting and possibly mind-blowing facts about animals that you may or may not be familiar with. But there's also some mind-blowing lessons hidden among these amazing stories, fun animal facts, and some truth about natural history. And we're going to start with big idea number one. What is normal? Well, Everything is. Quote, the animal world has a lot to teach us about how commonplace changing sex is. It also shows that it's normal to have an existence that's outside of male and female and to be flexible in partner preference, that there is widespread diversity in how non-human animals answer the question of which sex they should be attracted to. They have partners who pronouns, if they use them, might change multiple times over their lifetimes, and it's no big deal. An animal can prefer subordinate males or dominant females and they can like females that used to be male, males that used to be female, or they can skip over sex and reproduction entirely and live asexual lives. It's all fine. And besides the idea that other people's sexual lives are absolutely none of my business and I don't need or want to know what other people, heterosexual or homosexual tendencies alike do in their bedroom. I recognize that I am in a unique position where I am a cisgender, heterosexual woman who doesn't ever feel hassled about her sexual identity. It's interesting to me that people don't want or feel compelled to know about heterosexual human couples' sex lives, but we, as society, often are perhaps weirdly obsessed with homosexual human sex followed by, I hope, strictly scientific fascination with non-human animal sex lives. We are obsessed with ideas that we don't understand or that we think are weird. I don't really like that term, though. Weird. What is weird? What, For that matter, what is normal? And this actually reminds me of my recent certification training I took this past week to help individuals during or after a crisis event. Our instructor shared that the language they use when discussing thoughts and feelings after a crisis event can either help or hinder an individual who is hanging on to their mental health sometimes by a thread. Our instructor warned us not to say that's normal when talking about thoughts and feelings, but to use the phrase that's not unusual or better yet, that's a common thought, feeling, or reaction. Yes, people after a crisis are looking for normalcy, but if one person says, I have, a, I have bad dreams, and you say that's normal, it actually subconsciously tells the others who aren't having dreams at all that perhaps they aren't normal. When we say it's common, it doesn't potentially ostracize other people's feelings. And as a coach, I want to assure anyone experiencing trauma or anyone seeking help that what they're feeling is not normal or abnormal. It's just them, and it's okay. I also thought of Friedrich Nietzsche's As I read Queer Ducks. He says, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. So once again, there is no quote unquote normal. There is you, and there is me. There's no the way to living life, and that really is the beauty of life. No one experiences right or wrong. And that's especially true about our private lives, so you don't have to tell me, but perhaps you can ask yourself this, what is my perception of normal? Is my truth misunderstood or considered weird? First of all, yay, to be great is to be misunderstood. But secondly, remember that there is no quote unquote normal. What you feel is your way, and it's absolutely beautiful. And big idea number two, Sometimes we don't need a reason why. Quote, Paul Vasey, a primatologist studying Japanese macaques, tells us, despite over 40 years of intensive research on this species, there is not a single study demonstrating any adaptive value for female-female sexuality. In other words, there isn't an evolutionary benefit to it. Females are having sex with females because it feels good and because they want to. Of course, Vasey's not just establishing that macaque female experience desire, which is already a provocative idea. He's also arguing that females experience desire for one another. And that if the desire and equipment are there, it shouldn't be surprising that female macaques take advantage of sexual good feeling by also enjoying it in the same-sex pairings. It doesn't need an explanation like showing another female who's boss or turning on the guys. It can just be about female pleasure, as simple as that. How simple and how freeing and how important that the most compelling reason for why female macaques engage in sex with one another is also the simplest, pleasure. When I worked in the zoo field, I had a long list of behaviors visitors constantly asked me about where my answer was simply, because they can. Why? Why are the lions sleeping? Why did the dolphins bait a seagull? Why is that walrus masturbating? Because they can. Not because they have to perform these behaviors to survive. Lions sleep because they don't have to stay awake hunting. Not that lions hunt all the time in the wild. They actually sleep a hell lot of hours a day. We just never see all that sleeping in documentaries. The dolphins are teasing the seagull. It shows that a very high intelligence. But beyond dolphins being, you know, little brats and taunting other species, there isn't actually an evolutionary reason for them teasing seagulls. The male walrus masturbating again. I'm sorry if I'm using adult language here, but we are talking about sexual behaviors. Masturbation was bound to come up. They do it because it feels good. True, there, at that particular time, there wasn't another female for this walrus to mate with, but I am told by this particular walrus's caretakers that when he did have access to females, he still did it. So, he did it because he could. People constantly want to know why animals do the thing. At the same time, when you ask someone why they do certain behaviors, they don't have an answer. Why do you pick or bite your nails? Why do you play with your hair or twiddle your thumbs? We're okay with the idea that these behaviors have no evolutionary purpose, but when we see an animal acting differently or in a matter that we perhaps find disconcerting, there absolutely has to be a reason why. And maybe there are evolutionary purposes for a dolphin baiting and teasing a seagull. Perhaps it's very important for a walrus to learn how to relieve themselves of sexual tension. But the fact that there may be evolutionary purpose to some of these behaviors doesn't mean they don't also do them, wait for it, because they can, because it feels good or it makes them happy. I find this a very freeing thought. We don't have to be super productive all the time. We don't have to have a reason for everything we do. We can sit back, take a nap, watch some YouTube just because we can. As long as it doesn't take over your life and prevent life from happening, i.e. watching YouTube all night and not getting enough sleep for the next day. You can enjoy what you want to do simply for no other reason than because you can. Before we continue with our Zoo Notable, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. I couldn't do these Notables without them. So we'll be right back after these messages. And this leads us to big idea number three, science and confirmation bias. Quote, this is a general trend in science, which is to provide negative explanations for why an animal's sexual expression or mating habits are quote unquote unnatural. There is a hormonal imbalance, the story goes, or maybe a lack of suitable sexual partners of the opposite sex. Or the animal is making mistakes in choosing partners. Or queer sex is explained away as a technique to quote-unquote show another animal who's boss. Or as in training for proper, i.e. straight, sex later on. Disregarding that those explanations, even if true, don't make the homosexual sex any less of a sexual act. Sex between straight humans can be an act of dominance after all, or training for future bonking, but it's still sex. Some of these negative explanations are true in some cases, but as we'll see, they fail to explain a wild abundance of queer animal sex and sexual identity. Do you follow the news? What news outlet do you most frequently watch, read, or listen to? Are you aware that our habits are... Predisposed notions influence how and what information we receive. I'm not talking necessarily about the creepy social media algorithms that send you ads for something you thought about buying the other day. I'm talking about how we interpret information ourselves and how information even comes to us. There's an interesting phenomenon called confirmation bias. This refers to the idea that people have the tendency to search for and interpret information in a way that confirms or supports one's preconceived beliefs or values. Now, for instance, I'm a zoo advocate. So much of the information I receive is centered around the good that zoos do for wildlife and conservation. A person with opposite views, say someone who wishes zoos would shut down, will often receive information that provides further evidence to them of the horrible conditions zoo animals exist. Now what's really fascinating is when a zoo person and a anti-zoo person consume the same news story, they often interpret the information in a way that either proves or confirms their own way of thinking. Now what does this have to do with queer ducks and other queer animals? Well, actually a lot. I always put my faith in science. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson's quote about the great thing about science is that it's true whether you believe in it or not. However, is that actually always the case? For decades, even centuries, scientists or animal observers explained away homosexual behavior and as a devout believer in science, I took these explanations as fact. But what Elliott Schrieffer presents in Queer Ducks shows that this may not be the case. This is confirmation bias rearing his ugly, biased head to twist the truth. Now, how often have you heard one or more of these explanations? Homosexual behavior is likely a case of mistaken identity. In male and male sexual acts, it's likely practice or a dominance behavior. Or my quote-unquote favorite, as explained in evolution's rainbow, there's trickery involved. As in, the males are somehow tricking the females by mimicking female traits and having sex with other males. I'm not even sure how that really works. Now, I have to admit that I've even used some of these explanations when I've been asked about homosexual behaviors in animals like dolphins. Now The literature I read explained it away like homosexuality was still unnatural and that heterosexual activities where the normal, quote-unquote normal, there's that hideous word again, behavior. Now I'm feeling, I, now though I feel quite empowered. I have something that breaks the confirmation bias cycle and promises a more inclusive and I dare say accurate picture of nature. But this does have other applications in my life and I'm sure it does in yours as well. Now I hold on to some of my values wholeheartedly to the point where it actually pains me if someone disputes my ideals. But does refusing to see another side of things serve a greater good? Isn't that what empathy entails? Seeing all sides of an issue without judgment and coming to an issue from all angles. I'm reminded of my response to a question, how do I handle someone who denies climate change exists? It's not about proving that climate change exists. It's about helping those we interact with to change their lives and use their values to make a difference in this world. You don't have to believe in climate change to care about your community or your health or your family's well-being. I mean, awesome sauce if we were on the same page, but I am working hard to not let confirmation bias cloud my vision and my ability to reach and help everyone I come in contact with. So how about you? Do you have an ideal or value that you struggle to see another side to? How can you curb your confirmation bias and start to see things from many other angles to get a more complete story? A big idea, number four, the power of oxytocin. Quote, in a now famous experiment, a primatologist tried introducing a source of honey to a group of chimps and then to a group of bonobos. Both sets of apes got really excited by the honey as their equivalent to candy. And the group of chimps, the strong young males, took control of the honey and beat up any females or elderly males who tried to cut in and get food. This way, the tough guys in the control remained in control. Everyone else hid away because the males were riled up by the exciting new treat, and riled up chimps get aggressive. And when the same experiment was repeated with bonobos, it went very differently. First of all, they circled the honey source. They got really tense, showing their teeth and shrieking. You could sense their anxiety. How are they going to distribute this delicious food without fighting over it? The question was overwhelming, so none of them touched any of the honey at first. And then, well, that's when they started an orgy. <laughs> Not just two or three or four of them either. All of bonobos started having sex with one another. Male with female, female with female, male with male. Young and old and everything in between. Some was full-on sexual contact. Some was more what we would call heavy petting. Bonobos will kiss, even with mouth wi- open, ma- with wide-open mouths. Only once, they, when they were all blissed out, <laughs> did one ape casually take a slurp of honey. Another took some too, and then another. Soon they were all sharing the food. Little infants took honey right out of the jaws of big males in their prime, and no one minded. No one got aggressive because they were all too in the good of mood. Friendly physical contact among animals releases oxytocin, a hormone that promotes bonding. Our bonobo cousins provide us with an important lesson. Social connection among primates like us matters not just for happiness, but for survival. Sex produces oxytocin and oxytocin bonds us. And those bonds produce a more stable, cooperative society. To put non-scientific words to it, oxytocin bonding looks a lot like what we would call love, and the bonobos show that love is a survival strategy, same-sex love in particular. All right, all right, so before everyone gets their panties and no twist, let me state for the record that I am not saying that we should settle all disputes in our society with sex. I mean, it's not the worst idea I've heard of, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not suggesting it. No, what I want to focus on is why bonobos have sex to settle disputes. The sexual contact among bonobo society helps strengthen bonds and, more importantly, releases oxytocin. Now, oxytocin is also called the love hormone. Oxytocin is released after an orgasm, yes, but that's not the only way. Mothers release oxytocin after giving birth and while nursing, which helps them bond with their newborn. Research also shows that hugging someone can release oxytocin or receiving a massage, as does snuggling with your pet, either Mr. Whiskers your cat or Miss Bones your dog. Now, this is what interested me. It's not just the sex, but the physical contact and closeness with someone that you like or enjoy their company. And this kind of got me thinking. What would happen if we as society released some oxytocin before a confrontation or a tense meeting or when simply talking to someone who maybe raises our blood pressure? Once again, get your mind out of the gutter. I'm, not talking, I'm talking about non-sexual releases, like getting a short massage or hugging someone, embracing them with all our heart. Or, as I'm beginning to see the true purpose for places like animal therapy facilities, A session petting a rabbit or a cute kitten or a friendly puppy giving you kisses. Or maybe even a goat. Now, How would releasing our love hormone, the neurotransmitter that promotes social bonding, help us in moments of conflict? I'm going to say it right here. We need more pets in offices and workplaces. We need oxytocin stations where people, if they're comfortable, can receive something like a massage or a neck rub or perhaps a little pampering with their nails or hair. Have a stressful meeting with their supervisor or client, give the office bunny a good snuggle before and see how much better the meeting goes. Or if there's some tension among your team members, see how tense you are after a quick five minute finger and palm massage. What I think this world is missing right now is love, sweet love, hormones. Love for our neighbors, love for our coworkers, love for everyone. So it's important to release some oxytocin just to make the world a better place. But I'll be honest, maybe not quite the way bonobos do it. Big idea number five, being an ally. Quote, one reason why queer animal behavior is missing from your average high school textbook, or in the broader scientific literature for that matter, is that the academic study of science is generally species-based. Biologist typically becomes an expert in one animal, studies that animal, writes their dissertation on that animal. That dissertation contributes to the published research on that creature and is also what gets that young scientist their first academic job. And is queer behavior in that dissertation? Probably not. Since they're not going into the field looking for queer behavior, they simply might not see it, assuming any mating animals they see are male and female. And if they do bother to sex the animals they see mating and discover queerness in their species, they might assume is that it's from an error in their observations or that it's a peculiarity limited to that population. And even if they do think of it's of interest, young scientists might be reluctant to publish it. Articles undergo what's called peer review in which leading experts in the field assess the scientific validity of a paper's claim. Let's say you're a 20-something studying geckos, and the the 600 pages of scientific literature that currently exist on geckos, published by giants in the field, don't mention any homosexual behavior. But you saw it! You could bravely write on that finding, contradicting your immediate advisor and the professors who are in charge of your academic future, and risk established scientists writing to the journal to complain that your upstart study contradicts their own well-accepted studies. Or you could simply decide to publish on some other aspect of gecko behavior. If you want to get a job and pay your bills, wouldn't it be easier to just publish on foraging strategies instead of homosexuality? Everyone loves foraging strategies. No one writes hate mail about foraging strategies. So you make that reluctant choice. Your queer racing article comes out. Now there are 620 pages of scientific literature on geckos that don't mention homosexual behavior. There's even more precedent discouraging young and unestablished researchers from going against the flow. All right, so what does confirmation bias and pressure to conform with standards set by a society who often turns a complete blind eye to facts they are witnessing, i.e. homosexual behavior or behaviors that don't conform to what we have believed to be quote-unquote normal, what does it have to do with being an ally? Well, on the surface, it doesn't have a lot. But there is one more interesting component to the book Queer Ducks that I haven't shared yet and that is the interviews with scientists and researchers who identify as queer. One interview really caught my attention, though, was from a heterosexual cisgender male by the name of Max. Max mentioned something that spoke to me very personally. Many times those in the LGBTQ community studying animal behavior or observing or reporting homosexual behavior in their subjects have been accused themselves of confirmation bias that they only saw homosexual behavior because they were hoping to find homosexual behavior. And Max pointed out that the opposite is very much true. If homosexuality in a researcher influences their observations, then wouldn't the same be be said for heterosexual researchers? It reminds me of the book, Simon vs. A Homo Sapien Agenda, where Simon, a gay high school student, wonders why only gay people have to quote-unquote come out. Why doesn't everyone come out as either hetero or homosexual or, again, even asexual or bisexual or whatever? And I think science is the same. Well, at least, sort of. Why do heterosexual studies get positive attention and homosexual studies get negative attention? And how can I be an ally as an animal behaviorist? Well, for one, I can share the sexual behaviors commonly diverse among species and let everyone know that whatever they feel is okay because it's natural. I can promote programs and ideas with those who identify in the LGBTQ community, how they are not alone, and use the animals to release oxytocin, which helps connect people to conservation too, I might add, while becoming more accepting to the, of themselves and of others. And I can be a heterosexual cisgender female who sees homosexual behavior as common, natural, and perfectly healthy in animals, and yes, humans too. Now Max, the hetero-cis male researcher, recognized that his non-male, non-hetero, non-cis colleagues often fight an uphill battle when trying to report diversity in the animal kingdom. So he uses his privilege to help back up his fellow researchers' claims. It's time that we start seeing more than the 620 pages of foraging behaviors on animals and start waking up to the reality that while research is scarce, the diversity is not. If we can accept animals willingly and openly to be whatever they are, then surely we can do the same for other human beings. Again, I am PJ, a white, cisgender, hetero woman. I use she, they pronouns, but I fully support and love all of my LGBTQ community. That is both human and animals. As Elliot Schrieffer says while closing Queer Ducks, some will argue that just because something occurs in the animal world, that doesn't mean that humans ought to do it too. After all, no one's advocating that human females ought to eat males after having sex with them like praying mantises do or that we eat our young, or cannibalize our parents, or any of the other behaviors that are found in the natural world. That argument is taking this book the wrong way. This book, like almost all the articles I've read on queer animal behavior, does not try to argue for queer human sexuality from the example of animals. Instead, it's the reverse. What I am saying is that we can no longer argue that humans are alone in their queerness, that non-heteronormative human sexualities and gender identities are unnatural because they don't exist in the rest of the animal kingdom. That position is simply not valid. Queerness is a well-established and fundamental part of nature. And if queerness is wrong, then you better be willing to say that the entire animal kingdom is wrong, too. Amen, Brother Elliot." So if you want to read Queer Ducks yourself, it is available at all public libraries and bookstores. So I highly recommend supporting your local bookstore and support a great author doing some incredible work. There are many other great titles about diversity in the animal kingdom, including my original choice for this Notable, I will admit I did eventually find the book, by the way, called Evolution's Rainbow by Joan Roughgarden. And the often quoted in Queer Ducks, Biological Exuberance by Bruce Bajamil. Now, Elliot Schrieffer is a New York Times bestselling author whose nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times and Discover magazine. His novels include The Darkness Outside of Us, Endangered, and The Lost Rainforest series. Elliot is working on an MA in Animal Studies at NYU, and you can visit him online at www. Dot dot com. Now let's close here with a couple of quotes. These are all from queer ducks but attributed to other researchers. Starting with Bruce Bajmil in Biological Exuberance, a history of the scientific study of human, animal sexuality is necessarily also a history of human attitudes toward homosexuality. Elliot tells us, before a conflict can get nasty, the bonobos engage in some group sexual activity to get everyone feeling full of love for one another. As a prominent bonobo scholar put it, the chimpanzee resolves sexual issues with power. The bonobo resolves power issues with sex. As sex researcher James Weinrich puts it, if animals do something that we like, we call it Natural. If they do what we don't like, we call it animalistic. Historian John Boswell puts says, what causes homosexuality is an issue of importance only to societies which regard gay people as bizarre or anomalous. And finally, Elliot says, changing the words we use doesn't just alter the way we speak. It also alters the way we think. And I appreciate this as it helps remind me that the word straight also implies that homosexuality is quote-unquote crooked so I have tried to refrain from using that to describe sexuality. That's what I've got for you with this amazing book Queer Ducks. Next month is Plastic Free July and we are celebrating National Zookeeper Week so be on the lookout for a couple of special episodes of Zoo Notable for a special fun month of conservation, animals, and wonderful stories.